Today, we're going to take a look at some updates for my Patreon product, The City of Ashes. We're going to look at the Heroes of Kryn Revisited Unearthed Arcana. We're going to take a look at two different Kickstarters, the Dungeon Morphs 4 Kickstarter by my friend Joe Wetzel at Inkwell Ideas and the Fraternity of Ash Adventure written by M.T. Black. And finally, we're going to do a product spotlight at the adventure The Isle of the Dreaded Accursed by JVC Parry and Mr. Tarask. This along with our April Patreon questions on today's Lazy D&D talk show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, and here on this show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive features, previews of upcoming products, previews of upcoming videos, a dedicated Discord channel, and all kinds of other things. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. And we're going to take a look at one of the products that patrons of Sly Flourish get access to which is the City of Arches. The City of Arches is a product I've now been doing for a few months, two or three months, I think. And it is a now a 22-page PDF city miniature city source book, a city designed for high fantasy adventure. It has all kinds of different adventure hooks, all kinds of different ways that you can integrate your characters, all sorts of different things you can do, and lots of tools to help you sort of build it. I've added one new major section to the city of arches uh this month which is the worlds beyond the arches section you can see like all the kinds of cool stuff we have a really really awesome side view map we added this in last month we have all kinds of different tools locations that you can explore npcs to interact with random events that can occur in the city all kinds of like neat stuff just it's a it's a city rich with adventure it's really kind of it's designed you could certainly run 20 levels of adventures in and around the city. But then I really wanted to like blow up and go way outside. And I created a, a two page section called worlds beyond the arches and worlds beyond the arches. It's 10, 10 different worlds that you might hear about. You might learn through lore or mosaics on the walls or ancient dusty tomes, crumbling tomes, or in some cases, the gods help you, you may go to one of these realms. Most of them are pretty risky places to go to. These were, I would definitely think of these as tier four level places to go to, but some of them, maybe not. And they're all, they're not just like weird planar places. They are all pretty weird planar places, but they're worlds that you might explore beyond the arches, like Corfax, the primeval land of the red star, Vinan, the forgotten library, Tarach, the jaws of chaos, Mafatar, the infernal machine, Drendon, the world of air and water. Irwind, the Endless Forest, Io, the Forge of Creation, Threska, the Desert of the Dead Gods, Dracom, Land of the Dragons, and Death's, Death Reach, the Endless Dungeon. These are all kinds of interesting worlds that you might get to through the old archways that exist inside the City of Arches. So that has been added to the City of Arches. It's page 16 and 17 of the book. Patrons have access to it right now. So if you go, if you are a patron of Sly Flourish, and you go, you can see we also have like a first level adventure and everything like that. This source book, this, this miniature product, miniature source, I'm going to call it a source book. Book is probably a little, a little over anxious, a guidebook, a guidebook to the city of adventure. I like that, right? <laughs> I like it. I wrote it. So this is available to patrons along with a lot of other exclusive material you can get to be um, as a patron of Sly Flourish, but patrons have access to it right now. So if you go to your patron page, you go to your rewards page on Patreon. It's like one of the first posts. And you can uh, download this and it has those new worlds beyond the arches in it right away. 
So I'm going to be sending out a patron note to everybody to let them know. But if you happen to be watching the show and you are a patron, you have access to it right now. I forgot to mention next week. I will, we will not be having a show next week. So enjoy your week. And in two weeks, we will return with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. So in D&D news, Wizards of the Coast, they, I don't know how often they've ever done this, re- released a revised Heroes of Kryn uh, unearthed arcana. So they had released a Heroes of Kryn one before. And some of it is that they've now announced that Dragonlance is actually going to be a thing. But some of it was they got some feedback, I guess some pretty strong feedback about some of the things that they did. And they put it back into a revised version of the Heroes of Kryn. I'm not going to dive into it too much. It was It's interesting that some of the things that they have done here. Probably the biggest one that I noticed is that they have this idea of bonus feats. And this is the idea that if you pick a background that isn't from Dragonlance, you get a free feat. And the feat can either be divinely favored, which is in this one, skilled, which lets you kind of train in a skill and get a bonus to a skill, or tough, right? You, you get extra hit points. And at fourth level, you get another bonus feat from either the first level list or one of these other ones, you know, alert, mobile, sentinel, warcaster, and things like that. So what's interesting about this is like that means that theoretically you could have four feats by fourth level. So it brings up a couple of interesting questions to me. One is, are feats no longer considered optional, right? That in, in fifth edition, feats were an optional feature, right? If the, the, core, the core fifth edition book, feats are an optional feature. You typically get an ability score increase. And, and, then, and then as an option, you, instead of an ability score increase, you get a feat. The reality is, I think, I think I did a poll on this. The vast majority of games use feats. The vast majority of characters are using feats. D&D Beyond defaults to having feats as an available feature, right? You can turn it off, but it defaults to having an available feature, which means that the optional one is more like not having feats. But you do have to sacrifice ability scores, ability score increases to get feats. And typically when I've been playing and my players have been playing, the fourth level, they most always take an ability score increase because it, it kicks you up to 20, right? Or it can, you, can, you, can, you can get bumped up to a much higher stat if you take an ability score increase over a feat, which often means you don't get a meaningful feat until eighth level. I know a lot of DMs actually give players an optional feat right in the beginning to let their characters grow, you know, grow a little bit more. The question is like, are you going to get into zany stuff, zany weird combinations of feats faster later, particularly like Sentinel, right? Sentinel is a really crunchy feat. And if you pick like Polearm Master, you know, a Polearm Master Sentinel, you, you can do some kind of really interesting things, right? So I wonder about this and I wonder like what, you know, and then big question is, well, what does that mean for the next edition? And they tried to be careful to say, oh, this is just for Dragonlance. It's like, yeah, sure. Like you're not looking at this and wondering whether this is core. So that's really interesting. I also, I, it cracks me up at the idea that like, oh, you know, you can pick a feat or you can pick divinely favored, which means like, well, everybody's divinely favored, right? We're all favored. We're all favored equally. We're all divinely favored equally. I don't know, it cracks me up. The other nice thing, I was worried about Divinely Favored because Divinely Favored allowed for wizard spells. And I was like, I'm immediately going to have to ban Shield as a Divinely Favored spell because Shield is, oh, is really, really powerful. Everybody wants Shield. And Shield is one of those first level spells that would benefit you your entire career. If you're a 20th level fighter, you would love to be able to cast Shield, right? It's such a powerful spell. And I was like, I don't want people, I don't want everybody to have shield. I I don't want everybody to have access to that spell. So I was going to block it. Well, now you can't because wizard spells are not, you know, wizard spells are not from the sets of spells that you can pick from. So you're not going to be able to get shield. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm good with that. Um, 
yeah so interesting stuff and you know it's always interesting to see where it goes better better people than i have dove in more into a lot of the changes that are going on in here uh, i always listen to my friends sean and teos at misdirected mark uh, at, at, at mastering dungeons i love to hear them talk about this stuff so if you're interested more in like what it, what it means from a kender and what it means for this other stuff there's other places because I'm, i was mainly interested in the feet in the feet idea and this question of like our feet's no longer an optional feature are they now uh, uh is it now considered a core a core ability we're going to take a look at two kickstarters today the first is from my friend joe wetzel uh, at inkwell ideas this is the dungeon morphs 4 kickstarter so inkwell ideas has a bunch of different products they they have a uh, really popular cartography program that they've done for a long time that he's done for a long time but he also has these things called dungeon dice Dungeon dice are one of the more common things you see like a gaming convention. You go and you talk about it. Oh, that's interesting. Dungeon dice are large formatted dice that has a, you know, a, a single color map on it that no matter what orientation you angle it can fit with the other dice to form a small dungeon, right? You can get six of these dice. You shake them up, you roll them out, you set them together and you've got a dungeon. You can arrange them and line them up in different ways, but they always end up creating this kind of dungeon. It is a really neat tool to kind of shake up your thoughts about building a place. If you want to build like a quick dungeon and you want to get some ideas about what the orientation of that dungeon might be like or how those things work, you can take these dice, you can roll them, you can set them out and you can look at them and see how they go. Obviously, it's not really playable. Like the, the, you can't, you can't use the dice like as a map, but it's a good, I, I, I have some, Joe and I are friends and I've, I've, I have some s sets of dice around here somewhere. I think I got them in this box. No, I got my side quest deck. I don't have them in the box, but really cool tools and really kind of fun way to sort of shake things up. You know how I feel about randomness. I love randomness. I love using randomness and creativity together to come up with interesting things. These dice do it, but that the dice are actually only one part of what he's got going on in this Kickstarter It's a great big Kickstarter with a lot of different things. So the other thing he has is if, if dice aren't really your thing and the idea of rolling these dice, aren't your thing, you can get a bunch of these cards and they are about three inches on a side. I think make sure I've got that right. Two and a half inches on a side. So again, not playable, but playable enough that you can put them out on a table and actually run them with a group. And it's all of the different orientations of all the things that you would find in the dice. So you can get 102 of these things, shuffle them out, orient them, and make yourself a dungeon. Then the other cool thing are these 10-inch dry erasable battle mats that are actually fitted for miniature play. So in this case, you could take four or six of these things, you could line them up on your table, and you can actually play off of them. So that that's a really interesting. I haven't tried those yet. I really I want to try those out. And then he has a 100-page book of bonus modular encounters. Now, as the Kickstarter is growing, you can add new, they're, they're, they're going to be adding other new products in this, including extra dice into the dice packs. So the dice sets are going to get bigger, seven, eight, maybe even nine dice uh, for a dice pack. So they're a little pricey if it's only six, but as the as the stretch goals out go out, they might add more dice. That 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 pricey dice set is definitely going to be more valuable. There are digital versions of all of this as well. The digital versions of the large format ones you can drop directly into a virtual tabletop. If you're using an advanced virtual tabletop like Roll Twenty and things like that, you can change the orientation on them. You can pile them together. If you're using like Albear, it's not going to work directly in Albear, but you could use an image editor outside of Albear, orient your maps, get stuff set, drop it into Albear, and use it that way. Or you could use like a single 
tile and that would and that would work in owlbear pretty well so you know a really neat mix of physical dice small cards for inspiration large cards for actual play at your table digital versions of those so you can play with them the other thing he does that's really interesting is you he has a font so you can actually add it to you like a word processor as a font and then you can drop in the tiles as a character of text and then change them and orient them. So you don't have to manipulate them just as JPEGs. There's an actual vector-based version usable in a, as a font. And I, I thought that was fascinating. So really neat stuff. Check out his Kickstarter. You can find the link to the Dungeon Morphs Kickstarter in the show notes below. Really cool stuff. And I am looking forward to seeing what comes out. Well, big, big difference. One last thing to mention. Big difference is there's new orientations of these dice. So they're doing uh, a layer set, which has sort of a brown and yellow, yellow on brown and a uh, sewer set. So totally different sets of dice than have ever been out before. But you can get all of the old, uh, you can get all of the old sets. And here's an example of one of the cards. I don't know if he has the, the fonts, but yeah, here's the box that has all of the tiles in it. This is what a tile looks like. The tiles are really cool. Like those are really, really good, really, really fun maps. So neat stuff. So check out his Kickstarter and 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 take a look. It looks really cool. Fun stuff. The other Kickstarter I want to uh, put a spotlight on is Fraternity of Ash. Fraternity of Ash is an, a, a, a very straightforward adventure for the fifth edition of D&D. It is made by M.T. Black. M.T. Black is a big publisher of adventures on the dms guild very popular adventure publisher of adventures on the dms guild also a writer for uh, descent and avernus wrote for, for wrote for wizards of the coast and he has a he's done a lot of really cool stuff and his the, the, i'll tell you the pricing on this stuff is really good eight dollars for the pdf it is a straightforward eight hour four to eight hour adventure of first to fourth level characters you know four first to first first to fourth level characters and I just, I love these like straightforward adventures. I previewed one in last week's show as well, right? Not everything needs to be these giant campaign books. Sometimes it's just fun to have a, a quick adventure. And, you know, it's 45 digest size pages. So one thing about Empty Black's books is that they actually can be read on a, a decent, if you have a good sized phone, you know, an American sized phone, you can, you can actually read them off of a phone and it works, it works really well. So I am always excited to see what uh, MT Black has coming out of his mind. I, I really love the stuff that he's got and I recommend picking up. So there's two different pledges, uh, a $7 where you get the digital pledge and an $11 where you get the digital pledge plus a uh, voucher to get the print on demand version. I went with the print on demand version. I like to have the option of being able to get it on print on demand and probably will do so. So uh, very cool. You can, uh, now this is interesting. I didn't know that you got it, but all backers get a copy of the Iskandar Sourcebook, 112 page city sourcebook. I have previewed that book on this show before. I think it's a fantastic city sourcebook. It inspired a lot of what I did with City of Arches. I really love this idea of like a focused city sourcebook that is easily digestible and really cool. So take a look at Fraternity of Ash by M.T. Black. Fiendish, oh, it's got cults. Look at that, fiendish cults. Who doesn't, who doesn't like fiendish cults? So fiendish cult and a sinister plot await you in this adventure for the world's greatest role-playing game. So check that out. Really, you know, cheap, cheap price, right? What do we say? $5 for the, for the PDF, if you just want the PDF. And I think $8 for the PDF plus a print-on-demand voucher. The print-on-demand voucher, of course, you are paying for the cost of printing, right? So it's, eight, it's only eight bucks, only $3 more than the PDF, but that's, that's the $3 that's going to empty black. You are paying for the actual price. So, you know, we have to figure out how much the print-on-demand cost is. But I've done that many times before and it works really well. I've actually, many, my Kickstarters used to do it that way and, and it works really well. So that is Fraternity of Ash by our friend, Empty Black. 
So now we're going to take a look at the Isle of Dreaded Accursed. Uh, Isle of Dreaded Accursed, I think also was part of a Kickstarter. I don't I don't remember the how this came about, but it is a tier two adventure, fifth edition adventure, again, focused adventure, 68 pages, uh, written by Mr. Tarask and JVC Parry. JVC Parry, Josh Parry is everywhere. He writes all kinds of different stuff. And it is a very straightforward sea-based, you know, sea-based uh, adventure. It's built into big chapters, kind of major events happen in each chapter. And kind of starts off with, I think you have to, you, you, you get like a mission from a local lord to go running out and take a look at, 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 at you know, strange things that are happening out in the sea. A lot of it is tied to this evil sea goddess, Elvarath. Small cult. Hey, look, another cult. Small cult of worshippers that build a temple in her name. So a neat kind of seafaring adventure. Reminding me a bit of Ghost of Saltmarsh, but obviously is going to be tied tighter together than Ghost of Saltmarsh was. Ghost of Saltmarsh, all the adventures are sort of independent. You could kind of run a thing that connected them. I did, but wasn't built that way. This one is clearly, clearly built that way. Beautiful layout. Beautiful layout. Beautiful design. Uh, really, really, you know, great looking art. The maps are fantastic. You know, it is a it is a really solid. One of the things that just like I've become enamored by is the quality of adventures that are coming out from independent publishers. This is something that took a few years to happen, right? It took it took a while, but now we're starting to see publishers that you know small independent publishers who are putting out really tremendous stuff the layout has gotten much more beautiful the the style it's as good as anything you'd find from any of the major publishers right these really really good really 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 good looking stuff so yeah 40 page adventure custom monsters lots of interesting things going on i don't think so there's there's a little bit of like a twist at the end i don't want to spoil it too much but there's kind of like a twist at the end and i always worry that the twist at the end if it doesn't play out exactly right and somebody figures something out far earlier, how does the game go then? It's a little trick like that, you know, that sort of like, oh, you know, curse your inevitable betrayal. Sort of that problem. Nice maps. And I think you get when you when you pick up Isle of Dreaded Occur, you get the map pack, a VTT compatible map pack designed for fifth to 10th level characters. It's got bone dragons in it. You know, really, really good looking, really good looking fun adventure. So if you're looking for an aquatic adventure. If you are running your own aquatic adventure and you wanted some ideas to harvest from, even if it's just pictures or even if it's maps, this looks like a good adventure where you could grab uh, a lot of material for it. So really cool stuff. I like it very much and I recommend it. I would I would check it out. It is 15 bucks for the PDF available on Drive-Thru RPG. 68, 68 page adventure and set for tier two. Let's do some Patreon questions for April. Every month I put up a post on Patreon asking for people to post any questions that they like. People post their questions. I answer all of them on Patreon. Some of them I answer on this show. Some of them become uh, the premise of a video or a newsletter article. So Jake says, how do you decide which plans of the villains the PCs get to interrupt and thwart and which ones have already happened when they get there? This is a fantastic question. I don't know how to balance giving the players agency to stop bad things before they happen with the excitement and drama of having to respond to a bad thing that happened. For example, in Rise of Tiamat, I assume the players would be disappointed if they didn't get to fight Tiamat, but the players will do everything they can to stop Tiamat from being summoned, given the opportunity. So how do you decide which opportunities to not just not give the players because dealing with the resulting bad thing would be more fun? This is a really, I, I just spent a good chunk of Friday on an article that I had been monkeying around with for a while called, it, it, it's about the resilient plans of villains. 
And the idea here is, is in, in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, we have a villain. Uh, we, we, we talk about fronts, right? And we have like three, imagine you have a campaign, you have three villains. Each villain has a goal, something they're trying to accomplish. And each of them has steps that they're taking to accomplish that goal. What, well, the problem that they have is if what if the players or the characters interrupt one of their steps? Does that ruin their goal? And the answer is maybe sometimes, but good villains are going to have robust, resilient plans in which they have primary and alternate paths, right? So imagine you have a primary and alternate path. And an example in Rise of Tiamat is you need the five masks of the dragons to summon Tiamat. In order to summon Tiamat, you need a couple of things. You need five dragon masks and you need a giant pile of gold, right? Well, if the characters thwart getting some of the gold, now the now the dragon, the cult of the dragon has to do something else, right? They have to get gold from somewhere else. So they might have an alternative plan. We weren't planning on harvesting all the money from the rich people of Waterdeep. We were going to steal it from poor villages. But you took all of that because you got the island. You you stole the lair that had all the gold in it that the white dragon was protecting in, in Horde of the Dragon Queen. So that means we got to get gold somewhere else. So now they have to go get gold somewhere else. Oh, crap. You took three of the five masks and we only have two masks left, right? What are we going to do? Well, it turns out you can sacrifice ancient dragons. And the power you get from sacrificing ancient dragons is as powerful as if you had the dragon masks. That's an alternate path, right? They don't want to sacrifice ancient dragons, but they can do so because they don't have the masks because the dumbass characters took them. So the way to think about this is what plans do villains have and what are their alternate plans, right? And if you want to have a villain that where the characters are able to thwart the villain, but the villain is still able to move forward the plan, they should have a resilient plan. They should have a plan where... They have a step A. They would prefer to do A, B, and C, but if they can't do A, B, and C, they will instead do D, E, and F, right? For every plan, they should, or for every step, they should have an alternate step. Ideally, that alternate step isn't nearly as good for the villain as the primary step. It's not as easy. It's harder. It isn't as good. Whatever the output is, isn't as valuable. They have to do something they don't want to do. And that way, the characters are still thwarting the villain. They're just not stopping the goal, right? Now, in some cases, they will stop the goal. In some cases, they'll get ahead of it and they win. They win early. They manage to stop a villain. That's why we have three villains, right? If they manage to go and attack one of the villains. So one of the villains in my Eberron game was the Emerald Claw. The Emerald Claw was planning on taking a giant dragon shard, bringing it to Sharn and blowing it up and destroying Sharn. Well, guess what? Their plan was thwarted early. They never even got close. They only got close enough to manage to give useful information to another villain. And that villain took that information and ran with it. So one of the things that you have when you have villains and plans is if the characters focus on one of the villains and manage to thwart their plan, they win and they get to defeat that villain. But you have two other villains, right? You have that's why you have three. It's like you 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 not only have a robust, uh, resilient villainous plan. You also have a, a resilient campaign because you have multiple backup villains, right? So that that sort of webwork and tapestry of multiple villains, each with primary goals and each of them with plans. And those plans have multiple parallel steps or multiple alternative steps that they could take builds this tapestry. And then you get to that, that way. They're kind of moving forward and you get to decide which are the fun ones that are going to be in front of the characters, which are the fun ones that are going to be able to disable. They still feel like they're accomplishing something, but they're not, but, but you're not completely thwarting the issue. So Jake, the really interesting topic, I'll probably do another video on this topic. I certainly have a news article. I just wrote, it's actually coming out on Monday. So Monday it's on Sly Flourish Tuesday. It will be in the newsletter. So if you want to see that article, Subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter and you'll get all these kinds of articles.
Great stuff. Alex S. says, I know you have spent a reasonable amount of time with 4E. I did. I played through all of 4E. I became a published author during 4E. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the points of light base setting and the overall philosophy on POL style game. How can you use the lazy DM tools to make a perilous but heroic POL campaign? So yeah, the idea of points of light is that instead of having a well thought out, well published area where like everything is known the paths are known the things that are between the paths are known instead that you have these sort of beacons of areas that are safe that are surrounded by unknown wilderness i so i never hung on too tightly to that idea i know that that idea resonates with people a lot but really all of the places can be like that forgotten realms is like that they sure they have the mirror of dead men but what the hell's in there they have the troll moors what the hell's in there right lots of things can happen on these roads between cities there's, and, and, you know, Wizards of the Coast is adding new places in between these areas all the time. So really anything can be a points of light setting, right? And any of the kind of traditional fantasy settings can be points of light. Eberron can be a points of light setting. And I don't think that there's any specific DM tools, lazy DM tools that work with like points of light that don't work with other places. I think the idea of point crawls, right? The idea of a point crawl works really well. I talk about point crawls in the Lazy DM's Companion. I have articles and stuff like that. So... I think you can just, you know, I think it's more of a philosophy that you have, which is that the, there's the, the wilds are dangerous, right? The spaces in between towns and cities are dangerous and anything can be there. And that's, it's, it's very unknown. And this is the idea that like most, you know, 99% of the villagers in a city never, or in a town, never leave the area of the town in their lives, right? They never travel to these other, these other places. I think you can just sort of hang on to that idea, but I don't, I don't think there's any specific tools that really support points of light versus, I don't even know what the opposite of points of light are, like a rich setting where everything is known. Because like, I mean, D&D are games of adventure, and of course you're going to have like bandits on the wayside who try to kidnap you only to have a dire bullet burst out of the ground and eat the bandits, right? Which would make for a pretty fun encounter if you want to make a fun encounter. The worlds are always like that. So I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I have any specific, I don't know if I have any specific guidance for that one. Ian R says, I find ranged combat and many of the spells with huge ranges hard to incorporate into my online battles. Uh, maps seem to cater to just short to medium range combat. Do you have any advice on how to cater to the mix of ranges? I don't. I don't actually worry about long ranges. It's, it's interesting that a bow can go 180 feet or whatever. That fireball has like 120 foot range. The problem is if you if you try to build situations where you're giving people the advantage of those really long ranges, what's like there's a there's a warlock pact where you can get like a 240 foot range, you know, with with an Eldritch Blast, right? Which is what, 48 squares, right? And it, it, the, the problem is like if you build a situation where that's advantageous to that character, that means your dwarf fighter has to spend 16 rounds running across the battlefield to go get into a melee. So that's that's not that you know is is that really that interesting i don't i don't find those kinds of real long ranges to be the interesting part of the story that we're telling it's fine that they're there fine that there's long ranges are there but personally i never worry about making sure that the that people have the advantage of that long range there can of course be situations in the game where they go oh my bow can shoot really long way and i can see that guy i'm gonna take shots at him while they're coming like we're gonna do that sort of like legolas standing on the hill when the uh wargs are running at him and he's just firing arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow right he's just bang 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 until the horse comes and picks him up or he grabs on the horse right so there, there could be circumstances and situations like that. I don't know that I would worry too much about trying to make those events happen. 
I would I would let the story dictate when it makes sense for long ranges to have an effect. And many times I might be outside of combat. Oh, I can fireball that hobgoblin camp from the mountain. I don't even have to go down and fight him because my fireball has such a long range. Cool, right? So Ian, that, that's my kind of thought. on Matt M says, I'd like to ask your thoughts about reskinning monsters versus creating custom monsters. This is a topic I talk about all the time. You always suggest reskinning monsters that exist in, as a good lazy DM tip, and I see the value of that, but here's my dilemma. I'm working on a, a big bad evil guy for my tier one right now. At fifth level, any CR five to seven spellcaster seems to have around 50 to 80 hit points and no legendary actions or legendary resistances. Even with minions in the fight, I'm sure my party will gang up on the big bad evil guy. I feel like I need a boss with more survivability. I think I need to homebrew something with legendary actions, resistances, and probably a ton more hit points. Otherwise, she's just going to die in round two and I'll be anticlimactic. How have you handled this kind of thing in the past? And what would your advice be for this situation? So there's levels of reskinning, right? There are there, there, much like there's not like theater of the mind and gridded combat that there's a range of different map styles that exist. Same way, like when you reskin, there's like, you know, running a monster that's right out of the book all the way to building a homebrew monster that you, or every step of it has been done by you. There's ranges and those ranges can be, you just call it something different. The range might be, it's a different creature type. Another one might be, you take a one or two features that make sense for that monster and add it to an existing stat block. There's all sorts of different ones. And I think that you can go far by taking, so you, you know, you, it sounds like your big, bad, evil guy, it's a tier one bad guy. So there'd be fourth level or fifth, I guess if, at, at fifth level. So you're saying at fifth level, that's tier two, but let's assume that's at fifth level, right? And, and fifth level, you got some pretty robust characters. So if you have a fit CR five to seven spellcaster, well, let's take the mage, right? Let, we'll take the standard mage step. Whoops. Right, and you just want to have a boss that's the mage. <coughs> the mage is CR six, but you're right. Forty hit points is really low. Well, guess what? I don't have to custom make a character to say, you know what? This one has 120 hit points. Right? It was really easy for me to say it has 120 hit points now. Right? That that is very fast for me to do. I can do that in my head. I don't have to customize anything. And now I have a creature who's three times more survivable than this one. I can just say it. Do I have to come up with a reason why? Nope. She has magic shields right? She has a magical shell of protection. And it, you're, when you're hitting her, it's cracking and cracking and cracking and cracking through those shields. That's the equivalent of her losing hit points, right? So she might only have 40 real hit points, but she has 80 temporary, you know, you don't have to come up with mechanics, right? Pretend she has 80 temporary hit points that she gave herself because she's got this magical shell of protection. Legendary action and legendary resistance. I mean, I'm pretty sure you can just add that yourself, right? And we can, we can add this in and say the mage, this, this particular mage, this boss mage has, is, is legendary, right? So she has legendary resistances. We know what that means already, right? Legendary actions, we might say she can fire off cantrips as legendary actions. If you look at like the Lich, the Lich can do that, right? So that means she can fire off Firebolt right as a legendary action and she can do one of those at a time maybe you could give three legendary actions and she could cast like a first to third level spell right so she could fire off magic missiles she could fire off a fire a, 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 you know two fireball i mean that'd be pretty brutal right very brutal but you can play with it and you can during the game you can kind of see but you notice we didn't change we didn't we're not making a custom stat block we're just i'm just talking right i'm just saying words and and we can still come up with a we can take the mage stat block and turn it into a pretty powerful boss i don't have to homebrew it though i'm not coming up and figuring out what her intelligence score is i've got it right now i might say like ah you know dc 14 plus six i'm just going to increase those by one so there's a lot of stuff you can do to increase 
uh, a monster to, to change a monster stat block. It's still reskinning. It's deep reskinning. You're getting down in there. You're getting you're getting past the surface layer, right? But it's not hard. And you could write, you could jot down on a three by five card a few of the changes that you want to make just so you remember them. Or you could just have them in your head. And you could do a lot of these on the fly. I, I feel like I could make a legendary mage boss on the fly and not write anything down. And it's those things I just mentioned. Give it a butt ton of hit points. Uh, maybe increase its attack and, and DC by one, maybe two. Give it legendary resistance and give it some legendary actions. And I think you're I think you're in a good spot. So I think you can still get far. I would argue that you can still get far with reskinning before you have to go design a monster from scratch. David P says, following up on the question about standby backup players, how do you incorporate the backup players into an ongoing campaign? Do they play their own characters that pop in and out of the game? Or do they play the missing players' characters? So this falls into my rule that you always want to make it as easy as possible for people to get into the game and play, which means you don't need to do anything like just give them a character and then say, oh, yeah, your new friend is with you. Right. Like make it as easy as possible. And don't worry about the continuity of the story. Most DMs, I think I did some polls on this and most DMs do not worry about the continuity of the story when they're incorporating characters that are in and out. You can kind of design it a little bit if you look at the character and say like the character wanders off and the wanders back in. We had a character that was very funny. It was Krintos, a wraith. Uh, or white. It was a, a white champion fighter played by one, one of my players who would come in and periodically. And the shtick was Krintos would always just kind of like show up like captured or frozen in a thing of ice or somewhere else. And it was like, how did he get all the way here? Well, he rode by balloon and then the balloon fell and then he got frozen in ice. It was hysterical. So you can, you don't have to have a perfectly tight story. It can be fuzzy. It can be funny. All the players understand why you're having this character get in, ingrained there. But one of the things you might do is like if you have a player who's on call who has a character, you might try to figure out how their backstory is such that they can kind of come in and out of the game, right? And there's a lot of different creative ways to do that. Like if, if you're deep in a dungeon, right? And it's like no way that character could have been here. Well, what if there's a stone statue of the character who's like frozen holding a scroll of stone to flesh in its hand, right? And you're like, how'd you get here? Oh, I wandered down here and I got hit by a basilisk and I was trying to use my scroll and then I got turned to stone. So you come up with you know, wacky, wacky ways, right? As a fun exercise, come up with 10 ways that that character could be dropped into that, the, the session and, and it'll, it'll spurn some ideas for you. But yeah, the main thing is it doesn't matter that much. The, the the important thing is playing games with your friends. So anything you can do to bring that character into the story easily and fast, even if the continuity is not great, your players know why it exists. It's because your friend is sitting right there ready to play, right? And everybody wants to play. Get past the, you know, get past the hard parts and just get, get to playing as a group. Doug P says, how do you show conflicting factions to PCs without just telling them? Secrets and clues? Right. You gave me a brief question. Thank you for that, by the way. One sentence, quick question. And I'll give you a quick answer, which is through secrets and clues. Like you, there's, there's two things you're doing. We talked about villains earlier that we talked about villains earlier that your villains, you have multiple villains. Your villains have a goal and your villains have steps that they're taking. And ideally those steps are things that are visible to the characters somehow. And the way they would learn about those steps that they're taking is to hear about them from secrets and clues. They discover things. So while you're, if you have a, a, a campaign that's got a lot of intrigue between conflicting factions that are fighting against one another, what are the, what are the, 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 the physical things or, or what are the things that the characters can discover that show them those 
shifts in the faction? Is it there? Are they starting to see things? An example of this is Princes of the Apocalypse. There's four different factions that are all fighting against each other. And as the players are dismantling one of them, the others are getting further along. So what are the things that you can see that, that, that show that those factions are changing? But the easy way to do it is if you're keeping track of it through your villains and their goals and their steps, then you can look at those villains, goals, and steps, and you can create secrets and clues and then drop those secrets and clues into the, in front of the players so that they can see that the things with the factions are changing. Oh, so I hope that answers your question. Doug, thank you for the question. Nate H says, I'm 20 sessions into a swashbuckling campaign, tier two, and the characters have just defeated the second of five pirate bounties. Given that we play twice a month at most, I feel that it's moving too slowly and I've written myself into a bit of a corner having five pirate lords. Do you have any tips for picking up on the pace of a campaign now that it's taking too long? We can look one question up about factions and say, I bet the pirates are fighting themselves. And what if like two of the other pirate groups have been destroyed destroyed by a third or been encapsulated by a third and now three of those pirate captains are now one and like a bunch of their ships sunk and a bunch of them have mutinied but now there's like internal factions there's interesting things going on with internal factions but there's really only one pirate lord left and that's because things happen the other two maybe one of those pirate captains wandered off to a haunted island and never came back right and they're like well who knows right so the world is evolving and it means that those five five pirate captains can also evolve Right, that that can also shift and change, and 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 dramatically reduce themselves as one group eats another group. So yeah, you can shrink things down quite a bit by having external forces or bad choices reduce some of those pirate captains. But all of this gets into the same thing we were talking about before, which is having multiple villains. Those villains have goals, they have plans, but sometimes they will clash, and one villain will eat another villain, maybe literally. Right. So Nate, that's how I would do it. I would have the I would have the bandit captains fighting each other and one of them might destroy the others or even bring them. Alexander R says in my Eberron campaign, my party accidentally. Oh, this is a bad one. My 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 party accidentally released a Dracolich that once that went on to rip open the gates of Kyber and release the overlords of the Daleker and Daleker. After releasing the Droglitch, there's going to be a two-year time skip, I love time skips, where the monsters of Kyber overrun the continent, and the two overlords and two Daleker in uh, something of the last war, right? Remnants of the last war? I forget what it's called. And Droglitch divvy up Corvair among themselves to rule, at the same vein of Wolverine Old Man Logan. How do I show the large change to the state of the world and make it really feel like the second age of demons has come? I would start by blowing up Sharn, right? I would, I would, so first of all, boy, this is dark, right? Man, you're taking this world that's all like high fantasy and beautiful and, and, and then turning it into this thing. So I would, uh, a few things I would do. One, I would, I would blow up Sharn. I would have Sharn collapse. Like whatever the magic was that was keeping Sharn upright, and that Sharn is now a necropolis. It's a massive dead city with lots of people destroyed. I would probably have, I would look at the empires and I would say which groups have taken over which empire, which groups are now completely owned by Daleker, you know, which ones are completely just twisted by madness, which the Droam I think is a really interesting one. The turning the Droam into good people I think is really neat. The idea that the monstrous race of the Droam and the daughters of Sorakal, they're your heroes because they're the ones actually keeping the real bad people at, at bay, right? You also might have Arganesson, like the dragons of Arganesson might look at it and say, they might do the same thing they did with Zendrek and say, you know, Zendrek has turned into this terrible place because of the, the, the giants, the, the giants of Kulsir. So we're going to have to go in there and destroy it. So now the dragons could be villains because they're coming in to say, we got to wipe the state clean before this gets over to our world too. 
So I think there could be a lot of, there's a lot of different ways you could do it and a lot of different ways you could twist up the factions, but I would take a lot of factions that were good and turn them bad. I would take some that are bad and turn them good. I would get rid of a lot of them. You could have the Mornland expand. You could have, maybe there's a whole other section that's turned into a second Mornland because another weapon went off. All kinds of things that you could do in here that I think would be really fun. But boy, it's going to be a dark campaign. It's going to be like a post-apocalyptic campaign, but it sounds like that's what you're running. So Alexander, that is what I would. Ryan, how do you handle a mistake? This is an important one. How do you handle a mistake you've made when you realize it mid-session or combat? For example, my player asked that we take a break from animal murder. And then in the next session, I was running a published adventure and threw some animals into the fight because I forgot to reskin as something gross and totally killable. I only realized this mid-battle. I apologized after the fact. Yeah, right away. The answer is you, you want to handle something like that right away. And you might just, a minute you find it out, you might say, hang on, everybody, I just need to take a break. You should also not be opposed to rolling back, right? And to, to just saying like, I made a mistake. I said that these things were wolves. They are, let me describe them again. They have tentacle, they're, they're, they're undead, right? You realize these wolves aren't real wolves. They are undead wolves and they got tentacles growing out of them or they're half plant wolves, Right. You can change things right away. And and this is one that's important, that if you've had a player who trusted you to say, I don't want to have any more violence against animals in my game, and, and then you did it, the first thing you need to do is, is pause and just say, can we take a quick break? I need a quick break. And then talk to them one-on-one -on -one and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up, right? I didn't, I wasn't thinking and I did this. How would you feel if, about these changes that I'll make? And to see if they make the changes. Then you go back and say, hey, everybody, we're going to make a quick change, right? These aren't wolves. These are mutants from the forbidden zone, right? And, and go with that. But really with something like this on like an X card sort of thing, you want to handle it as fast as possible. Handle it, you know, the whole point of like an X card and something like this is that you don't want to have to put somebody on the spot to defend themselves, right? So you don't say, oh, hey, is it okay if these are still wolves? And then they have to say no again. You don't want to do that. So instead it's better to say, they told you, stop, take a break, you know, talk to them offline, you know, maybe set up a separate chat or whatever. If you're playing online and say, Hey, I'm really sorry. I did that. And here's, you know, here's what I did. And here's how can we fix it? What can we do to fix it with them? One-on-one. -on -one. Then you come back, you take responsibility, you change it. You don't even bring them up. Right. But it's important. And, and this is one of those, there, there are a few times cause you know, people are hard, right? Working, playing, playing with people, working with people, dealing with people, personalities is hard. And sometimes we have to act quickly right like there it's all sometimes many times it's good if there's a problem for us to sit back and kind of separate ourselves from the problem and deal with it but then there's some situations that we're in right now where you have to handle it right away if somebody's harassing somebody else you have to handle it right away and this isn't an area where like dms you know like we've accepted this role to to be dungeon masters and it's like i shouldn't have to deal i'm not a i'm not a psychotherapist right i'm not you know, but then there, but we are taking an, an area of responsibility of management of our game. And when we take responsibility for the management of our game, that we're, we're taking on a bit of the happiness of our players and, and, and it can be risky. Right. And so there are times where there are things that happen that we, that we are, we're in the position to help. Right. And, and in that position, we, you know, we, we should do something about it. So if, if a player is harassing another player, we stop it right away. If somebody steps over the bounds on, on that we have for like our lines and veils, we have to stop it right away. If somebody says something that's just inappropriate, we do our best, right? To, to do something about it right away. So sometimes we really have to do something right away. And, and, and that's not easy to do. Confrontation is, is hard. Confrontation sucks. It's the, you know, the hardest part of this game. Hardest part of the game is finding players to play regularly. 
But dealing with people issues is by far, you, you go to like any of the D&D forums or any of the D&D groups and you look at the problems they're having, they're almost always people issues. It's very rare. It's like, oh, I have a problem with shield. It's like, no, I have a problem because one of my players is being addicted to one of my other players. What do I do, right? And we're not always best equipped to do it. I, I suck a confrontation. I'm terrible at it, right? But sometimes I have to do it, right? And I try to do my best, right? And I make mistakes and everybody makes mistakes and we try to do with it. But the answer to your question is I would, I would, I would try, you know, if something like happens, even if you're in the middle just say, hey, everybody, I need to take a quick break, right? And, and you don't have to say why, but you take a quick break. You talk, you try to resolve the situation, try to fix it, especially with something like that where somebody did make that attempt ahead of time to tell you what they needed to do. So really good question, Ryan. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for, thank you for, for, for bringing up the situation that you had so that we can all learn from it because I think it's really important. James M says, building my next campaign in the City of Arches with Acquisitions Incorporated type gameplay. Awesome. Thank you for both. City of Arches is very Hotel California. You get in, but you don't get out for most people who end up there. Trying to figure out a mechanic that would allow the party to travel through an arch on a mission to other planes, but would pull them back in X amount of time. Yeah. So I talked about this. I, I sent you a message about this, and I think this can work. That you can, you can, there could be all kinds of different ways characters can go through the arch. You might have a key that only lets you through once. Or and maybe back, but you might have something else. And, and I had this idea when I when I heard your question that we have the tower, the tower of Cartan, right? These shady wizards in the tower of Cartan, and they're up to stuff. What if they have a way that, like, look, we we can't get you all the way through a portal, but we can sort of treat it like a bubble that you can step through, and you can sort of step inside, and it will envelop you like you're stepping through cellophane, and it you 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 can go inside and you can do some stuff, and then it'll snap you back. It's like you're attached to rubber bands and, you know, the rubber band will whip you back. It's almost like going to the astral sea. You have, if you go into the astral plane, you have this tether that connects you to your home world, to the astral plane, right? Some go there directly, but many other travelers that go to the astral plane have this tether that tethers them back to their physical form in the other one. You could treat the city of arches the exact same way. The arches could be a way to step through into another world, but you're tethered back to your original and it will snap you back, almost like going into a dream version of the world. So I think I would definitely have like the Wizards of Cartan come up with options for that. And it's a scary sound. When you hear running water behind you, that's never a good sound, but I think it's our washer just dumping some water. So... You can definitely, you know, they're, they're, you can definitely play with those arches in lots of different ways. You might have a key that only works once. You might have a key that's a temporary key. You might have a key that works and lets you in, but it snaps you back. You might have a key that's a permanent key, right? And there's all different ways that you could do it. Like, you know, they could be keys that don't work reliably every time, or they don't send you to the same place. There's all sorts of different ways to play with the arches and the keys to really support any of the kinds of stories that you want to tell there. I designed, I designed the arches that way, and I have, par I have a couple paragraphs of text in City of Arches that talk specifically about this. But by the way, City of Arches, if you're not aware what this is, it is a city source book that is available to patrons of Sly Flourish. If you become a patron of Sly Flourish, you can pick up the City of Arches too. 22-page city source book uh, built for adventure. Step back says, uh, Step back says, I'm curious as someone who primarily runs homebrew content, if you read adventures you don't plan on running for inspiration, and if you read them cover to cover or some other method. The answer is yes. I, I read other adventures for inspiration all the time. And no, I don't read them cover to cover. I often skim. I look at art. I'll poke through it. Some of them I read deeper than others, but many times I just kind of absorb what I absorb and let that kind of flow in with everything else. I don't have a good system for it. I don't have a method. I just, I, I, and boy, I get everything, right? So I got like the one that I, that I just got recently was uh, Bane Warrens, uh, uh, something of the Bane Warrens by Monty Cook Games. Let's take a quick look. 
So Bane Warrens is a an updated adventure. It was originally written for 3.5. Now it is uh, updated to 5th edition by Money Cook Games. And it's a 180-page adventure, right? And I love it. I got it as part of the Kickstarter for Tolis. And I, I actually have the original Bane Warrens somewhere around here. I got I had the 3.5 that it was, I think it was Sword and Wizardry that put it out or something like that. And um you know, I'm not going to read the whole 180 page cover to cover, but I'm definitely going to read like the synopses and look at the chapters and poke at the maps and get, you know, look at NPC art. You just sort of absorb it, right? You just sort of flip through it. I actually wish I had the physical version of this. It's easier for me to flip through a lot of these things on their physical versions. But a lot of times what I do is I throw the, my method is I get a new product. I throw it on my desktop. And when I have some time to kill, rather than surfing freaking Reddit, I will instead take a look at a new product that I picked up and just let it kind of flow over me. Some of it I'm able to pick up quite a bit. Some of it is are huge. What was the one, the, the Oathbreaker, Throne of the Oathbreaker, right? Which was like 900 pages. Like I'm not reading that cover to cover, but boy, it was pretty cool, pretty inspirational. So step back, that's kind of my, my process and method, but I'm sure many of us have, have different ones. But yeah, the main thing is, yes, we can absolutely use published work to inspire our homebrew campaigns. And I recommend it. Many people do it. Rangdo says, your recent article on pacing, link in the show notes, made me wonder what about what you think about in-universe pacing. I'm running two games with entirely different groups and completely different systems and settings. One sandbox, one investigation, and they have the same issue. The players will not let their PCs relax. They insist on the PCs using every hour of every day engaged with the plot, hooks, and clues. I've told them we could just skip forward in time, but they don't want they don't want to. This wouldn't be a problem, except that it means that things happen in the setting incredibly and plausibly quickly because it has to react to the PC's actions. How do I slow the players down with them losing engagement it's a really tough problem because your players are kind of telling you they want to play a certain way and so if you try to change the way that they're going to play they might not be as happy but one of them is like you can have external events where they just don't have the information they need and it's going to take them time and maybe the, the downtime is them doing the research this is it's a gandalf like a year to figure out that the ring that bilbo had that now was in frodo's possession is actually this ring of power right it it, it takes 30 seconds in the movie but in time it's like a year that he's like out researching this ring and what is this thing right and he's looking at all these notes and and then he discovers what it is like oh my god we got to go back and deal with that ring right and goes back there right so sometimes they don't have the information they need and sometimes the information takes a long time to get sometimes they have contacts that say like look it's going to take me two weeks to get the information you want and that's two weeks that you have to do other things so they there's only so much investigation that they can do and you are kind of in control of that. You can kind of decide how much investigation they can do. So that that's, you know, turn your own dials is one, one possible way to deal with this maybe is to turn your own dials. But then the other one is to talk to the players a little bit more. I kind of described how, what you think would be fun and, and then, and about how it's been going and get an idea of what they find is fun. Do they think that downtime would be fun? Right. And, and another thing I do is I will declare a downtime time. I'll say, we now have some downtime. We could take a week or two for you to do these other things, right? And sort of define, just like you say, roll for initiative. You can also say, we're now going to be in a downtime session, right? Or a downtime sequence where you can say, like, we're going to expand out to days and weeks rather than minutes and hours. So that, that's just a couple of thoughts. I, I, hope that, I hope that helps. Zeke W says, do you have any recommendations for DMs when deciding to surprise player, players versus surprising their characters? For example, if a character has something interesting in their backstory that only the player and the DM are aware of at the start of the campaign, or perhaps the identity of a secretive person that the players otherwise won't learn about until much later in the campaign. I'm a big fan of twists in the media I consume, and I imagine twists can be well done in RPGs. Eh, 
not always the way you think. However, surprising the players somewhat forbids asking for feedback beforehand and surprising the characters isn't as exciting and can frustrate players who want to use out-of-character knowledge. It can actually be really fun. I've definitely had circumstances where it can be really fun for the players to know something the characters don't know because then they have to like role play a certain way, right? And that can be a good time. I will have flashbacks or I'll have cutscenes of events that the players, the characters don't know, but the players do, right? And that can be that can be fun. the The trick about like twists is that it's more fun when the twists just happen, right? It's better when a twist just happens instead of uh, you trying to figure out a twist that's going to work because sometimes it won't work the way you think because you have five other actors in your in your story here that aren't reading the script, they're doing whatever they're doing, and and that changes things. So. It can be tricky. So surprising characters can still happen, but it's it's better when it happens organically. It's better when you, if you're surprised, you're like, oh, I bet this thing happens. And in this session, I'm going to reveal it. <clears throat> the surprises that often don't work well are when it takes place, you, you, you know something that's going to take place a long time from now. I do recall like a Ghost of Saltmarsh game I had. It was actually uh, one of the ones that I prepped for, where the big surprise about who was leading the secret cult the secret organization known as the Scarlet Brotherhood, which who was leading them? A vampire that they allied, the characters allied with a vampire and the vampire used charm and immediately dissected the entire cult, dissected the whole organization of the cult. And then they said, hey, I want to I want to tell you some things and brought in one of the cult members that was a character that one of the players knew, not as a cult member, and said, who do you work for? And he said, I work for this dwarf. He goes, who do you really work for? He said, I work for the Scarlet Brotherhood. And they're like, oh my God. And he says, yeah, who's your leader? And he told, dissected the whole thing. It was really fun. Even though all like 15 surprises got dropped in like five minutes, it was really fun for the players to suddenly realize like, wow, boy, having a vampire as a friend is really, really useful. So you can play with that, but letting the story evolve as it goes is I find far more fun for both me as a DM and for the players because some of the things that the surprises are not predetermined. They just happen. And that's where things get really cool. So Zeke, I hope that answers your question. Jason K says, do you have any tips for running D&D games laden with political intrigue? I'm inspired by the rich tapestry of courtly life between various countries in such shows as Game of Thrones, Spanish Princess, Medici, and Isabel. Sadly, I find tracking of all parties to be a bit daunting. It, as well as determining their machinations. I'm hoping you might have some tips and tricks that would make it easy for a lazy DM to run engaging campaigns with political intrigue. Maybe you even have some random generators that might help with this. Anything you can offer would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Jason. So I've talked about this in other shows too. And I think there are two things you can do. One is for each of the political factions, you, you might have like one person that's in charge of a political faction. They have a goal and they have steps that they're accomplishing to, to or steps that they're taking to accomplish that goal. You do that for each one of the factions. So you know what they want, you know where they're going and you know what steps they're taking to get there. And then the other one is secrets and clues. As those guys are moving forward, as those political things are moving forward, Artifacts of those movements are showing up as secrets that the characters can discover while they're navigating the game. The reality is, unless your characters are really, really tightly wound around the campaign, they're not going to know a lot of what's going on. And you might want to reduce the number of factions and the number of goals that are going on. That can be really hard. But if you mix those two ideas together, have a faction, have a goal for that faction, have the steps that they're taking, and then each week you can look at each faction and say, how, how have they done in theirs? How have they collided? Has one group killed another or destroyed another? Has one group taken over another? And then let the artifacts from those drop in as secrets and clues so they're things that the characters can discover during their game. So that is that is how I would run it. But generally speaking... I try to keep these kinds of political ones relatively simple because 
players are having enough trouble understanding what we're saying some of the time. So good luck. Kyle says, any advice for dealing with players that love to get a jump on combat? I have a, one PC in particular who often senses that an encounter is headed towards combat and tries to get a free hit before we roll initiative. This usually triggers the other characters to try to get an action as well, often asking, does my spell go off, etc." I find this really frustrating. Our, our, as we are just cutting to the chase instead of getting to the dialogue, leading them there naturally. The answer is, uh, anytime any actor commits a uh, some violence against someone else you go to initiative you don't get to jump you don't get to jump ahead of initiative if a character says i'm going to ready an action to throw a fireball at that guy when he does some violence you you, you that you stop and say well, let's roll for initiative because they might be able to f do that thing before you can get your reaction off because initiative is the ultimate determination for who goes when so the minute the minute something is going towards hostility you can roll for initiative and, and, and things happen in initiative order. A couple of interesting things, you cannot ready an action outside of initiative, right? That you cannot ready like a, a, an attack outside of initiative. You can only ready once you've had your turn in an initiative order. So the minute somebody says, I'm going to ready it, you would then say, let's go to initiative and we'll see if you're able to do it. But that key is initiative happens before anything else. Nobody can ready a bunch of actions in initiative. Now inside initiative, you get this tricky bit of like somebody got banished and we're waiting for them to come back and we're all going to ready our actions so that the minute they drop back in, we're going to attack them. You're not going to roll for initiative again, right? So that one actually works. But yeah, they're, you know, take a look. I have, I have an article about surprise that talks about this sort of thing. But the general answer is, there is no such thing as a surprise round. You always roll for initiative and you roll for initiative the minute anybody tries to do any kind of... Joe M says, I am running a Runes of the Grenderoo campaign and the acquisitions incorporated downtime rules. The party has turned Starsong Tower into a thriving coffee shop. Yay! How do you recommend deciding how much downtime occurs between adventures when there isn't a villain or some other timed event driving the story? And if many four to five weeks go by, do you play talk through all four to five activities for each player or do you limit and or s summarize them? I go pretty loose. Talk to the players. Ask them how much time they would like to spend on things. Ask them what kind of things they want to do and how much time is available to do it. And you might say like, well, I want to make a magic sword. Well, that's going to be 16 months. You probably don't want to have downtime for 16 months. But maybe everybody's like, no, I think it'd be all be cool if we did this downtime for 16 months. And then you say, okay, 16 months pass and let's talk about that, right? You can have these big things. But talking about what the players, I think, is really a key. And then you don't have to be too systematic about it. So you might, you, you, you can also dramatically increase or reduce the amount of time that you spend in when you're talking to a particular player. Maybe the thing they're doing turns into combat and then you go into combat. Maybe it takes three weeks. So you expand it to three weeks. So the time spent in downtime is very flexible. And it's really that conversation, that improv conversation we're having with our players to determine about how downtime occurs, how much time they want to spend, things like that. So Joe, I hope that helps answer your question. Alaco Kane says, I am planning to run Ruins of the Grunderoot pretty soon. Two Ruins of the Grunderoot ones, right back to back. And I was thinking of giving players improved named spells from time to time as loot, like Grethel's Fireball that could leave a place on fire. How would you handle these kind of improvements uh, to not break the game or, or make non-magic users still relevant? So those spell, the idea of spells as loot is very cool. And one thing is you can use spells of loot as loot anyway without changing the mechanics of them. You could just say like Cone of Cold is a hard spell to find, right? This is something level up 5e, um, <coughs> level up advanced 5e, did a really good job of having like multiple variants. There's there's like a fireball and there's like a named fireball. And the named fireball is like a rare piece of loot that is a bigger fireball. A way to balance this is to look at spells that are one level up. And you might say like the spell that you get that's a named spell might be as, as powerful as a spell that's one level up from it. 
So you can kind of use that as a baseline. You probably don't want to do two or three. And the idea you have is good, which is just, can you add a kicker onto it? Can you add one small thing that it does that makes it slightly different than the other ones? But I think the idea of named spells as a, as a form of loot is really cool. And it doesn't have to make non-magic users relevant because you can give them cool loot too. You can give them loot that does spells, right? So yeah, I mean, as long as you're paying attention to making sure that the kind of loot you're giving your spellcasters, you can also give to your uh, non-spellcasters that is, you know, equal. I think, I think things will be fine. Of course, you're scaling up the game, right? That's a lot of extra power that you're giving to your players. So you want to keep that in mind too. But it's a cool idea. The idea of name spells is really cool. And I like that. Uh, CB says, I just watched the integrating characters into the campaign video and loved it. I've often centered adventures around a character's background story, but I've run into the issue and I don't know if there's a solution. Unfortunately, there's always a session or two during an adventure where the, the focused player can't make it. This leaves the rest of the group wondering if we should cancel until they can play again or make it without them. We've done both, but it always feels like there should be some elegant solution to this. Yeah. So if you have an, a part of an adventure that really requires one player to be there, that's going to be tricky. And you might have to run a one-shot game or like a, a flashback scene or maybe a side quest that the characters go on. Something that, oh, uh, three weeks ago we did this other thing, right? You could do something like that. Another trick is to make sure that you don't have a quest that just requires one character, but maybe two of them. So if only one of them is there, it can still go on, right? If two characters are both t tied to a particular quest... If they go there and that character can't make it, the other character can still kind of take over for them. But the, it, is, it is a risk. When you build an entire adventure around a character, that's definitely a risk. And so if you're going to do so, you want to kind of make sure you're not doing it to a player who's not necessarily going to be there. Because the reality is you don't have to do this all the time. You don't have to have quests that are built around one specific character. Right. That's not that's not necessarily something that you that you always have to do. And, and this is a good reason why. That if you, you want to have a resilient quest where whatever players are in there it can still work out cb good question bo t says i am currently planning my session zero slash one for descent into avernus using the fall of elturel starting adventure in doing so i'm a little worried that i won't be able to make the finale of 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 fall of elturel in the first session so my question is how to add a grand reveal like the disappearance of elturel in the middle of the session instead of at the end as it is planned in in, in fall of elturel i think that that adventure is very flexible in the amount of time you, you can spend on it that there's a lot of different things that you can do a lot of different encounters that occur while you're running around the hills of elturel before the fall but you could shrink that drastically you could have only one encounter maybe there's like three cultists that are uh, attacking the girl who's up in the tree right Rhea, right? Rhea? No, the other girl, the one with the rainbow scarf, right? And you can you can cut a lot of it. So if I were going to do it, I would cut a lot of it to get it to the point where the Elturel falls at the end of the session in your session zero. I think you could get that adventure down to like an hour if you needed to, because it's not that big. And there's a lot of different things where you could shrink it down. If you wanted it to go two sessions, A, you could lengthen it a bit and make it two full sessions, like a session and a half, your session zero and one, and then the end of session two, and then add more cults and add more things and add more intrigue and stuff like that. The other one is have it fall in the middle of the adventure. Have it fall in the middle of your first full adventure and then have like take a break right after it happens and then come back and say two, two months have passed. You're now at the gates of Baldur's Gate, right? And you could jump, you can do a jump cut in the middle of the session. And I think that could still be really powerful. And I think by having this large time jump right in the beginning, I still think it could be very cool. So, Bo, I hope that helps. And I I, I, I love that Fall of Elturel is a fantastic way to play Descent into Avernus. My friends, that is it for today's Lazy D&D Talk Show. We have just a handful of questions 
Maybe I might kick these off to next month. I'm not sure. I kind of hate to do that because I get tons of questions. So we may have a separate episode where we cover the remainder of the tips. But I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today. It is always a great pleasure to hang out with you and to enjoy this wonderful hobby of ours. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out in four ways. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter, support me directly on Patreon, pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore, or subscribe to my videos right here on YouTube. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.